dangerously close. This episode was brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. And first of all, I have to say, I'm originally from Arizona, and I know firsthand what copper strip mining looks like. It doesn't look good, and it doesn't sound good. But do you know what does sound good? Damn near anything William Mitchell Audio puts their hands on. William Mitchell Audio doesn't strip mine for copper, never has stripped mine for copper, never will strip mine for copper. So, go to williammitchellaudio.com. My guest today is Alex Falconer. Alex, a born and raised and will never leave for any reason Minnesotan, has been in the outdoors, Northwoods, North Shore, Boundary Waters, and beyond since before he could walk. He has the extreme pleasure of now introducing his children to the Boundary Waters and watching dip their paddles, drink from a lake, and listen to the loons and wolves. An avid trail runner, in May of 2021, Alex became the first ever known person to run the Boundary Waters Traverse of 110 miles through the heart of the Boundary Waters. Alex has worked on electoral, grassroots, and issue advocacy programs for the past decade and looks forward to dedicating all his time and attention outside of his family to preserving the Boundary Waters for generations to come. What's up, Alex? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Uh, you know, I guess my first question has to be, dude, uh, how many times a day do you get stoked that your last name is Falconer? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I get that. I get that kind of frequently, especially if I'm, you know, talking to somebody over the phone for the first time and have to verify information. I'm like, Oh, cool name. <laughs> I was, I get jealous of rad names. Cause I, my name is like, it's like the kind of name, like I should be running for like city comptroller or something, you know, <laughs> your name almost has like a game of Thrones kind of deal. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> anyway, I just wanted to ask if like, if that's a, like a, like a genuine thing where like you go to the bank and they're like, what's your name? And you're like Falconer. <laughs> yeah. And then there's on the other side too people that this is kind of a throwback to go back to super old SNL skits and there was the Falconer there was a skit for a bit. And so you can Oh kinda, shit, I'll, I'll YouTube that. I haven't yeah, heard of that. <laughs> people kind of age themselves and on the reaction sometimes. <laughs> uh but yeah, Alex, we're, uh, we're gonna get into a, a lot of topics today. But uh first, in order for it to all make sense, uh can you describe what the boundary waters are? Uh like what they are, where they are, and why it's such a special place. Yeah. Yeah, the Boundary Waters uh, Canoe Area Wilderness uh, is located in northeastern Minnesota. Uh, and as the name implies, it's the, it, the, the northern part of it is the boundary between Minnesota and Canada. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the United States' largest wilderness um, east of the Rockies and north of Everglades. So it's kind of this, this uh, giant swath of protected landscape uh that's super unique to the upper midwest um it's 1100 lakes is in this uh it's it's a freshwater canoe based wilderness so people traverse it by a canoe and then you know you get to the other side of the lake and there's a portage path that you put all of your gear on your back uh put your canoe on your shoulders and hike over the trail to the next lake and then continue on um it's a it's a, a world-class backpack uh or backcountry camping uh, backpacking, canoeing, fishing, uh, recreation spot that's been around and as a protected landscape since 1909, um, Teddy Roosevelt set aside the Superior National Forest. And then as the Wilderness Act in 64 began, and then uh, from there, it's just been this, this place that has just really been special and unique and treasured, uh, not only for Minnesotans, but 
Americans uh, in general. It's it's America's most visited wilderness area as well. Uh, just kind of outlining how wonderful this place is, um, and particularly just the accessibility of it. There's only you know this one uh, wilderness of size for the Midwest that's within a day's drive for you know the the Chicago, the Wisconsin, or the the major, the major metropolitan areas of the Upper Midwest. It's our place to go to. Um, I, had, I had no idea it was that big. Uh, what's like the first biggest is like, is that Yellowstone or something? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's wilderness versus national park. Okay. Uh, so, you know, a wilderness, no human infrastructure at all. Whereas, uh, people conflate it often, but a national park, you, know, you can, you can drive through it. Um, there's, you know, hotels and resorts and, and natural, uh, uh, modern amenities, you know, sprinkled throughout. This is a, a, a just a, a wilderness area. So okay, that, that makes sense. Cause I, I've, I've heard people say that, uh, you can actually drink out of these lakes and actually it sits in your bio that your kids drink out of the lake and you can yep. drink it without getting sick. Yeah. Yeah. The, that's one of the cool things. It's, it's one of the last places on on earth where you can actually drink straight from the lake. Um, one of the cool things about it too is the, the boundary waters in this part of the state is the top of the watershed. So all the water there has fallen from the sky nothing runs into it from a different source. So it's snow melts and rainwater. Uh, collect in these lakes and you know they're all interconnected eventually runs out most of the water on the eastern side of the wilderness either uh, drains down to lake superior or the western and northern part of the boundary waters it all flows north up through to hudson hudson bay i feel like the the only time i'd ever read about a lake i can't remember the name but it's it's in zurich with uh, switzerland and you can drink out of that lake too but uh, yeah it's the same thing it's it's melt water from the snow and that's why it's so clean i suppose right yeah, yeah. So it's uh, straight from the source. It's clean, pristine, um, and yeah, we've been going, you know, <laughs> for many, many years. The only time we've ever filtered the water felt like we had to was just if our campsite was near a beaver dam. Then you're, then you're just you know setting yourself up for Giardia. Uh, but aside from that, uh, any of the bigger lakes, faster flowing rivers or streams, it's it's you know my <laughs> my mom's a doctor. She would she wouldn't like this as a public uh, health announcement, but. You can drink out of the lake. <laughs> is the beaver dam water uh, just gross because it's stagnant because they put a dam up? Well, I mean, the water still kind of flows through. It's just then you're just because it I mean, partially, yeah, in a sense that the water has it's sitting still. And so beaver poop, I guess, whatever is kind of in the water. <laughs> like, you know, then there's the risk for Giardia exposure. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, man, I've, I've got to say uh, I've never had a chance to visit the Boundary Waters yet, but I have always wanted to and I will eventually at some point get up there but I was uh, thanks for giving like such a good description because you know I think surprisingly a lot of people don't know about the boundary waters you know if you're not from that region of the United States or if you're not from the United States of course but moving forward a little bit this is kind of like getting uh more into like part of when you got into some climate action stuff with this but it's uh it's my understanding that the boundary waters are being threatened by a mining company uh, well, what's, is it, is it just one company and what is the situation with that? Yeah. So the boundary water, since it's a wilderness, you can't mine inside of the wilderness boundary. You know, that would <laughs> violate all sorts of no human infrastructure, uh, rules within a wilderness area. Um, but you're right. There is a giant mining proposal just outside of the wilderness border on the Southern edge of it. Um, and again, all this water flows North. And so the, the water that would sweep by the sulfate or copper mine proposal would pick up acid mine drainage and bring it straight through the heart of the boundary waters 
Um, it also goes then into the Canadian Quetico Park, which right across the border, they manage that as a wilderness, as well as then Voyagers National Park um, uh, as well. So it's really about 4.3 million acres of protected landscape that's imperiled by this, this one mining site. What are some of the, uh, just for just kind of for clarification, like let's say this, this mining company gets their way and they're able to force their way in there and start polluting these waters. What would be some of the repercussions? I mean, I mean, I understand like, I mean, it would poison the water. You'd lose a lot of, uh, I guess the fish and obviously that would just affect the entire ecosystem. But, uh, do, is there, do, do you, does anybody have any kind of like projection of what would happen if it was allowed to happen? Yeah. So we've got uh peer reviewed, uh, water modeling data that shows where the would, where the pollution would flow. So the, the main threat here is it's a sulfide or, uh, copper mine. So the sulfates in the rock interact with air and water so quickly that it just, it turns into acid and then diffuses into the water. It's not like an oil slick that you can kind of put up a boom and skim it off the top. It just becomes a part of the water. Um, so along with the acid that would be released and that would drop the pH levels of the water, walleye and uh, wild rice in particular, are very sensitive to sulfate levels. But then also it, it, it carries along with it. Six of the WHO's top 10 elements to, uh, of hazardous to human health. So lead, arsenic, mercury, asbestos, like fibers, all these things would be released by the mine and, and swept into the water uh, and or as dust particulate into the air. And so you've got, you've got obviously the water potential, but you've got public health issues. Uh, uh, communities uh, right along that border area there, homes, cabins, drink, take their water from, from the area. Um, so there's that, there's the, the air pollution, light, noise, uh, pollution as well. And then just the pressure of a giant industrial landscape uh, within the Superior National Forest that would be put on on wildlife. So moose, uh, Canada lynx, um, this is two examples of, of animals that would feel a negative effect as well. And so it's, just, it's this is not an industrial mining area. It's, the, it's a forest, it's the Boundary Waters, and the town built up around it is an outdoor recreation-based economy. It's more like, if you think of uh, like Moab. I think people associate that as this, like this recreation center, people for everything from trail running to mountain biking, the hiking, um, as well as the national parks right nearby. Uh, this is kind of the Ely, Minnesota is kind of like Minnesota's Moab. People go there for the boundary waters, for the recreation opportunities that exist there. And so the local economy would be um, irre irre irreversibly changed, but then also destroyed. The lifetime of a mine is only 20 years. And the companies typically then pack up and head out once the ore is extracted. And then you've destroyed what we have and the outfitters and the resorts and the, the camps and all those that have built up around what we have right now would cease to exist. We can all agree mining companies have destroyed enough of the <laughs> wilderness of this country at this point. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's almost seems, I mean, I understand this is a copper mine. It's not like it's a coal mine, but you know, it just seems just absurd that in the year 2021, we're still dealing with a mining company is trying to get in here and destroy one of the largest remaining like wilderness habitats in in the United right. States. Yeah. And also again, yeah, like you're, as you said, it would also affect Canada. It would be an international travesty. <laughs> international debacle, right? And then and the the mining companies, I mean, they'll they'll say all the time, well, we need copper for modern life. You, know, you look at your cell phone, you look at the 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 burgeoning EV auto uh, market where you need these elements for batteries. And while that's true, yes, there's also copper is what they're mainly going for here. And there's, there's, it's not a rare resource and we can pick and choose where we want to mine for copper. Typically in the United States, anyway, it's, it's more in the Southwest in the desert. 
um, where this this sort of mining still pollutes the the nearby surface and groundwater. Just it's a fact of this mine. Uh, 100% of the mines pollute water. We just don't have to do it next to this pristine water-based you know wilderness ecosystem. Um, yeah. Given that we don't need, there's no national emergency calling for the copper extraction right now. Yeah, I, have, I haven't heard anyone say that copper is suddenly uh, uh, no. <laughs> that we have a shortage. I, and actually, I don't, I don't know how much modern pennies are made out of copper anymore. <laughs> but uh, you know, people don't even like at this day and age. People don't; they just throw pennies away. So <laughs> mines are unnecessary. <laughs> right. yeah, <laughs> no, I know they're necessary, that, but we're not. We don't need to just destroy the boundary waters for some greedy right. miners. <laughs> yeah, and at, at current mining capacity for what already exists, we have over 200 years of copper available to us, both at the rate at which copper is currently being mined and at our current usage. And so, again, there's this, there's no reason you know, to come in here and dig it up. It's that concept of in, infinite growth. They don't understand. So, you know, because we've already, you know, we've got more petroleum than we should ever use or could, ever, you know, at this point, like we need to stop using it in, in period. But they're still just extracting petroleum from the ground and hoard, you know. Anyway, man, I'm going on a, on a tangent because I got something way more. <laughs> we're, here to, we're here to talk about climate action, not to just lament uh, the events of the world. And one of my questions, or I just want to say like, just about you, like you're the kind of dude that's not just going to sit on his ass while people are out there trying to destroy the environment and endanger the wildlife. And you got out and you ran 110 miles through a wilderness that uh, most people only travel by water. Uh, I didn't even know you could run it because I know people are normally on uh, like take canoes and then do portages to get through that whole landscape. But you ran it and you did it to uh, raise awareness. Uh, there's a question in here. I, I guess uh, my question, uh, how was your run? <laughs> <laughs> the run was the run was great. Um, as good as a 110 miles can be in one shot. Um, yeah. The So I outside of you know work and family, my my hobby, my main hobby pastime is is trail running. Um, which in Minnesota is, isn't, there's not a lot of, you know, trails. I think people think of trail running as the mountain West and you've got all these scenic vistas of people running up and down like single track along mountain ridge lines, um, or like through deserts. But in Minnesota, we've got this, the North, uh, that has some amazing trails. And in fact, there is, there's one established hundred mile trail race, the Superior Fall 100, um, that's, uh, kind of a cult, but uh, following, but very well known and ex- extremely challenging that runs along the, in the Superior National Forest along Lake Superior. So I, I've, I've done that a few times and now it's, it's just, I wanted to meld my trail running with the protection for the boundary waters for a couple of reasons. Um, our campaign to save the boundary waters has kind of a history of, of what we call adventure advocacy, where people do these pursuits to draw awareness because I think people people like a, a unique story. And, and we had one couple that they camped uh, for an entire year inside the wilderness. Um, oh, so cool. started out in the fall, all, all winter, spring and summer and came out the, the next fall again. That was uh, a brutal winter, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah water was, in Minnesota. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, at, at a certain point we had to, cause they can't leave the wilderness boundary as part of their project. And so we set up resupply trips where, where staff on the campaign or their friends and family or just other supporters want to go in and would bring them food, uh, switch out some gear. And so, yeah, when winter hit, then they had this change their canoe for a dog sled and then and flip that in the spring, then get them their canoe back. Uh, yeah. So that's just an example of sort of the, the, some people have, have swam like a, a really long distance in the boundary waters. 
a, a group of women from one of the, the camps nearby uh, biked with a canoe on a trailer. Um, so it's, it's a towed a canoe throughout Minnesota, uh, stopping at towns along the way, giving presentations about it too. So all these things. And so I was like, well, what can I do? And this, it was trail running. And there's, there's actually, I think, six trails in the Boundary Waters that are backpack hiking routes that are over 20 miles in length. And so there are, besides the traditional canoe routes, there's the, there's the backcountry um, hiking and camping opportunities. And two of these trails meet in the middle, uh, and they both spin, they go east to west, um, the Border Route Trail and then the Kekakabek Trail. And then their, their trailheads kind of in the middle of the Boundary Waters are about a quarter mile apart. And so... I just had this idea to link the two of those together um, and give it a go for running them in one shot as a way to really reach a new audience. Cause we talk to clean water advocates and, and boundary waters users and the paddling community a lot, but um, not necessarily trail running on this campaign. And the, trail a question did, about what you yeah. just said too. Uh, Cause you said you, you're running it in one shot. And like, like for me personally, like I go for hundred mile bike rides, you know, pretty frequently, but that's, first of all, it's easy cause you're on a bike. But I still consider that like a pretty decent bike ride. Like I'll be tired after that. And yeah. also, but it's like, you know, bikes fast. So it's only, you know, it doesn't take, take very long to do that. How long does it take to run 110 miles? So like, wouldn't that take like, can you do it in a day or, I mean, well, no, uh, it depends like, on can the you conditions. do it under, in under 24 hours? No, it took me 38 hours. Uh, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, there's, there's hundred mile trail races all over the place that, uh, the people that are winning them are doing them in you know, less than 20 hours. Or, uh, I think the world record for a hundred mile runs on a road is like 12 hours, something like that. I mean, that's get out of here. Really? really fast. You could never do that. <laughs> that doesn't <But> seem human. <laughs> right. But when you're on a, on a, on a trail, the, the terrain is varied. And so you can't, you know, you can't, you're not sprinting the whole time. And then in the boundary waters too, there's, uh, again, because it's wilderness, crews can't get in to clean up trails with chainsaws. So it takes a very long time. Uh, and the primary <laughs> meaning behind that is that there's a lot of trees that have fallen over that just haven't been, been able to cut or it gets kind of bushy and you got to uh, essentially bushwhack through a couple of areas just following, following the map. Um, and so it, it, the challenge of it also is not just the duration, but the, the terrain that you're crossing. Do they not um, bring chainsaws in because it's just too heavy to carry that kind of gear? Oh, just can't have any motors inside. The oh, lake. yeah. That's why you guys don't have like people jet skiing and shit right. in the lakes. <laughs> yep. no, no jet skis, no no uh, snowmobiles in the winter. That's what. Uh, that's why you can drink the water. Okay, I oh, get it now. Right. I yeah. didn't. I didn't know that it would even apply to like also even like a forest ranger type person uh, with a chainsaw. Nope. No, they can only do it if there's an emergency. So if there's like a. a a tree that fell on somebody, unfortunately, or something like that. I mean, at that point for life-saving measures, then yeah. Um, you otherwise could, you, could, you could bring a helicopter in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can drop a forest, a forest plane, uh, in or yeah. Helicopter extraction, something like that, but that's in life-threatening dangerous scenarios. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, going back to, uh, the run though, I just, I have just some more curiosity and some about like, cause I, there's a, I have a trail near here at this place. It's called Percy Warner park. It's really pretty, uh, I guess it's a city park, but it's really big. And we have a trail and it's like 2.5 miles. And if I run that, I'm like, it like kills me. It's like, I get like, uh, you know, like the, the pain, yeah. I mean, you, actually, you probably don't even remember this feeling anymore, but for those of us who are not serious runners, you get like this, like sharp pain in your side. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask like, occasionally. That's, are, you, are you still get that even though you can run 110 that's crazy 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's all part of training. I mean, like I, if I were to bike a hundred miles, I'd probably feel way worse than you would too. You know, it's just kind of what we're, what we're accustomed to. Yeah. It's just, yeah. What you're, uh, yeah. What you're accustomed to. But my question is like, how did you, like, how do you even train to run 110 miles? Cause it seems almost unnatural to do that. It's, with. It's a lot of running. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you just got to keep, it's just uh it's volume over time before my first hundred mile run on the superior in the superior race. I was talking about it. That was about a three years of, of training for me to build up that much uh, volume of running to run on the trail itself in various segments, get used to it, building up with smaller races. So, you know, after marathon, typically the, the first kind of ultra distance, meaning anything longer than a marathon is a 50 K it's like 31 miles. Then there's 50 mile races. And so just kind of stepping up and just keeping that running volume going just to get your, your body used to it. Um, Cause it's, it's the big physiologic uh, stress that you're putting on yourself for that much. And so your body has to adapt. And, and if you do it too quickly, you're going to injure yourself. And so it's just kind of over time building up to that. Um, yeah. and so then for this run too, just with the, the previous hundred mile runs I had under my belt and other races, but then also I, the two trails that I linked together for the, for the final run, I ran those each separately, um, as well as all the other trails in the boundary waters over 20 miles in length. And so just really getting comfortable running in the wilderness, uh, because there's no, there's no roads that you're going to cross. You're by yourself. So you have to get out, you go in and it's on you to get out. So that figuring out what sort of gear I need to carry with me. You know, I always had a, a small medical kit. If that was necessary, you have to have enough calories on you somewhere, uh, a, a way to carry water. So you have like the water packs and mapping out kind of like what's the furthest distance between rivers or lakes to fill it up, figure that stuff out. And so just a really, a lot of experience and time put into just making sure that one, that I could complete it, but do so safely. <laughs> you know what I didn't even think about, man, is that, it just kind of dawned on me when you said it takes 38 hours to do that run. So are you just like in the woods with a, like a flashlight running, like with no, cause there's obviously there's no street lights. There's nothing. You're straight up in the real woods, yeah. with like a tree canopy. Right? Essentially, I mean, a, a headlamp, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Lit up, light up at night. Um, just to keep going through the trail. <laughs> yeah. Was it spooky? Uh, it can be. Yeah. Um, trying to think there's a couple of times on, on the training runs that I did, there was two times where it got a little bit freaky. One where it was just pitch dark, it was cloudy and it was a new moon. So there wasn't even any like light behind the clouds. So it was just absolute darkness. And I stopped at one point to, to get some food in the middle of the night. And I spooked up a moose that was just off the trail. Oh, and man. just all I saw, all I heard was just this giant, just crashing and thunderous, <laughs> like noise running away from me going through the woods. And that was definitely a little bit terrifying. <laughs> and then on the boundary <laughs> traverse run in the middle of the night, it just started raining. Um, and I was running with another trail runner, Claire Gallagher, uh, and she and I, and then a photographer that was along with, um, Brennan. I mean, it, it, it started out the day of like 80 degrees, almost 90 degrees, super hot. And then at night, the temperature just plummeted and it just started just pouring down rain on us. And it was 40 degrees and I was cold. Um, that was kind of like the dark spot of the, of the run. Um, just getting worried about hypothermia is really just about just keep moving forward and just getting out. So yeah, it could get, get a little dicey, it could get a little spooky, but get oh, hell yeah. Cause I was just going to say, I've been spooked by a, just a raccoon like it that night. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're so like, they seem so like the, the noise they make seems so much louder and bigger than they are when they're like, yeah. if the raccoon jumps through a bush and you can't see it, you're like, yeah. Oh, it's Bigfoot. So I imagine that a moose has got to be, 
like the freight train version of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, super cool to see it. And that was awesome. Um, it was at night. So all I got to see was just its tails that kind of was bounding away from me by the time it kind of, my headlamp was focused on where the sound was coming from, but cool. it was definitely a big animal making a lot of noise. I've never seen a moose. I hope that, uh, when I get up to the boundary waters, it's the first thing I see. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up. It's time for another My Views or My Own Astrological Reading. This week's horoscope is for Scorpio. Well, well, well. It's Scorpio season again. Pinch, pinch, sting, sting. Tis a season to remember that Scorpio is a fixed water sign that is all about swimming in the deep end of emotion while aiming to cultivate intimacy, power, and control. So get your little stingers out, Scorpios, because we're about to celebrate great moments in Scorpio history. First off, we have The Scorpion King, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The Scorpion King is the true story of the Akkadians, hired by King Pharaoh of the Free Tribes to kill Memnon's sorcerer for 20 blood rubies. Pinch, pinch, sting, sting. Next, we have Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. And who can forget his famous catchphrase, get over here so I can pinch you. And let's not forget the Red Scorpion's gang who have been running drug trafficking operations in the suburbs of Vancouver since 2000. Gang members can be identified by RS tattoos on their arms and necks. Any forms of skull tattoos on the right arm indicate how many people that member has murdered. I hope these great moments in Scorpio history have inspired you, Scorpio. Now get out there and pinch and sting any obstacles that get in your way. And now back to the interview. And actually, uh, let's kind of kind of on the same subject, but just moving a little bit away because we're talking about like, I mean, you didn't just run this just because it was hard to do and gnarly. You also like, I mean, it's you're raising awareness. You're trying to get people to, to realize like we got to protect this, you know, this land, you know, and these animals and, you know, everything that goes along with it. What are some of the other organizations that you work with to protect the, the, um, the boundary waters? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're the campaign to save the boundary waters is a nationwide campaign that leads a coalition of over 400, uh, organizations, businesses, uh, and, and associations, um, that are all allied and trying to find a solution for permanent protection for the boundary waters. Um, so some of the groups that we work with uh, on the, the NGO side are the, the Wilderness Society, Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, um, those sort of the, the big, quote unquote, like the big green groups um, yeah. also have an allied organization, uh, Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters. So the hunters and anglers side of it for conservation, for habitat, as well as then our, we have a business organization, Boundary Waters Business Coalition, because like I was saying in kind of the beginning, there's an entire economy built up around the boundary waters and it's very important uh, ways of life. And so that's represented everything from small uh, mom and pop outfitting shops in Ely, Minnesota, but then also national brands that have a stake in the game. So uh, like Patagonia, which, you know, they have a very environmental friendly corporate ethos, but then they also, oh, I love them, man. As yeah, far as, a, as far as a corporation goes, I would say yeah. Patagonia is my favorite, uh, as far as like their, what is it, like their mission statement or, you know, yeah, they do how they operate as a company. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then they sell, they sell a lot of product to people in the bottom of our, so they've got a financial stake in the game. Plus it's the right thing to do. 
Yeah. Um, but then also like uh, REI or North Face, Keen, you know, some these big kind of marquee uh, outdoor recreation based businesses that that are allied with us as well. So it, it's quite the organization that we have going on. It's, it is a national movement. And we're we're now seeing some of the fruit of our labor uh, as we're marching down the road toward uh, finally establishing some protection for this area. That sounds like a good team, man. I'd, I'd hate to be uh, on the side of this mining company facing <laughs> down some of the organizations you've said and and yeah. and people like you with the dedication to, you know, to do what you do, you know, like that's clearly like clearly you love this. Uh, I mean, clearly you love the Boundary Waters. Obviously, I know you said you're a trail runner, so like it's a sport you're going to do anyway. But, you know, yeah. to get out there and like and go to all the work to, you know, to make it where people know about this is fucking amazing, dude. Thanks. Uh, you know what, Alex, we're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. Uh, <laughs> this is like a segment of the podcast where I'm just going to, I'm going to continue to ask you questions, but at this point, they're going to be a little bit more rapid fire right. and uh, you're going to have less time to like really think about what you have to say. It's just gut reaction. That's just kind of how this goes. So this is just like the game segment of the podcast. Does that sound cool? Right. Sounds good. All right. Uh, First one, it's what everybody's got on their mind, man. Is there a beef between the Boundary Waters and Quetico? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, uh, we're friends. <laughs> really? No, so people yeah. over in Canada don't, don't be like, uh, man, Quetico is 10 times better than the Boundary Waters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they might. Um, but no, there's a, and there's actually established uh, border crossing procedure. Uh, so if you're in the Quetico, you check in with the ranger station still on a canoe uh, at a cabin that's built up right at the border to, to show your permit to cross over. And so it's, it's a, it's a friendly arrangement between the two governments and definitely encouraged to, uh, you know, I love the Quetico too. It's, it's, it's worth the trip. Cool. Uh, I mean, I guess since they are also somewhat in, uh, in the path of what could be some of the slurry coming mm -hmm. off this mine, uh, is there kind of a coalition up in Canada as well that, that's uh, maybe not affiliated or not maybe affiliated, but they're not part of your thing. Yeah, no. Um, so there's what's called and not associated with the name of this wilderness, but there's what's called the boundary waters treaty. So the boundary waters treaty uh, monitors uh, the, the trans border like policies between the two countries. And one of the agreements between the two countries is that we're not going to pollute each other's water. Um, and that treaty has stopped the mines in Canada from from being established because it would flow into the United States, and this one would flow into Canada. And so the Canadian government has, through this treaty and what's called the International Joint Commission that monitors like the 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 issues between the two countries, um, has written letters to our government saying that they're concerned about this. They want a detailed report on how they're not going to allow pollution to flow into Canada. And so, as far as an official governmental stance, Canada has weighed in against the project. Um, or at least at minimum raising concern. Um, and then there's the, the Canadian uh, counterpart to the, the Sierra Club up there that's, a, that's against the project. Lots of Canadian citizens have voiced their opposition um, and the, the parliamentary members right across the border that represent the Quetico and the nearby areas um, have all voiced their opposition as well. Awesome. Uh, oh yeah, moving on. I forgot, this is the lightning yeah, round. Lightning yeah, I don't round. feel like I'm bringing enough lightning. Uh, <laughs> I got I got to warn you, man, the lightning round goes off the rails. So we're actually going to get into some questions really just about Minnesota for a second. Uh, what is the best band or artist from Minnesota? I, I would say the hold steady. 
um amazing band they're actually coming kind of they're doing like a 20th reunion show in minneapolis this weekend um i think everybody kind of associates prince maybe a controversial take here but i'm not a super prince fan um but uh uh, for some reason this is so weird you would say that because some reason uh recently that song has been playing like i was like I, I i had to go somewhere to buy a hoodie I was out of town and I forgot to bring a hoodie and I was like in the mall and like raspberry beret came on there. And then I was like in the car and it came on there and then it came on my Spotify playlist. I don't even listen to Prince. So it must've been a sign that I was going to speak to you. But I'm going to go ahead and say, agree to disagree. The best artists uh, slash band from uh, Minnesota's atmosphere. That's just going to be my opinion. Okay. Atmosphere is good. We've also got Bob Dylan. We've got Lizzo. I mean, there's a lot coming out of Minnesota. Um, People just don't like think about it. uh all right so do you think for your next challenge you will swim 110 miles through the boundary waters (laughs) no No? i'm not not a swimmer no okay that can happen well we'll just put that on we'll call that maybe (laughs) (laughs) uh all right if saint paul and minneapolis are twin cities then which one is mary kate and which one is ashley <laughs> uh I'll go Minneapolis is Mary Kate just to have the alliteration there. All right. Sounds like that's absolutely correct. I've just checked my facts and you All were right, totally good. right on right there, dude. Nailed it. All right. But this is actually this is not this is not boundary waters specific. It's not Minneapolis, you know, Minnesota specific, but it is climate action. And the question is, what advice would you give people to keep them from becoming uh, a climate doomer, you know, so to speak, and instead go out and take climate action. Because I feel like right now it's very easy for people to become apathetic or overwhelmed. If, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's one of the things I think that big industry has done the most devious thing is to convince people that climate is up to us as individuals to solve as, as if turning off our lights is going to, is going to be the same as, not extracting oil. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's this tremendous pressure that people put to, on our own selves to do every single little thing. I mean, if you accidentally throw away a pop can in the garbage instead of recycling it, you know, you feel bad about that. But it's like, okay, what is industry actually doing that's making the climate crisis worse? And I think that's really on display in the Glasgow conference right now, uh, where the, the world's governments are getting together trying to solve this thing because it's more than what individuals can do. So I would just say, like, alleviate the pressure off of individual actions and do what you can to uh, advocate for change on a global or at least macro system systemic level. So electing uh, uh, politicians that are actually going to take it seriously, um, trying to uh, advocate for policies that are going to uh, at minimum start taxing carbon for real um, and, or uh, just uh, promoting green technology differences that are going to get us off of fossil fuel. I just recently became familiar with uh, another uh, form of it's, it's for like carbon uh, sequestration or just the reduction of carbon emissions. And yeah, carbon tax is like really good, but it's kind of like the stick and the carrot. So the carbon tax would be the stick and there's another potential thing would be a carrot. And that would be creating another form of currency called a carbon coin. Hmm. It would be a blockchain. And so any like large petro state or just some, you know, even just a private or uh, company like ExxonMobil 
BP, something like that. What they can do is they can choose to uh, sequester their uh, carbon or choose not to extract their carbon. And in exchange, it can be they can get a buyout of a carbon coin. So I don't know. It's something to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of things like that that could be done. Um, I think the problem is just at what point is it to just become corporate spin where it's not actually achieving anything versus actual tangible results. And really, I mean, the biggest thing that we're going to have to do is just get off of this reliance of burning fossil fuels on a global scale. I mean, that's the, the single biggest thing. It's not one person not eating a cheeseburger like to, like to attack uh, AOC over. It's it's like, what can we actually do to focus on a large scale changes? Absolutely. And then, yeah, like you just, you've got your, your immediate in your face danger with this mine, this copper mine that's going to try and pollute the boundary waters. But ultimately we've got an existential danger. That's just maybe just a little bit further down the road. And that's just going to be simple climate change is going to affect yeah. the land as well. Well, yeah. And just to bring the boundary waters into the climate thing, um, the, the boreal forest is acts as a, a carbon, a giant carbon sink and actually sequesters twice the amount of carbon as a tropical rainforest acre by acre. Um, and so then when we have these landscapes like this, that, exist as a natural carbon sink um and it's all part of you know the the 30 by 30 plan of of conserving at least 30 percent of the world's natural spaces we need things like that to to act as a natural buffer against climate and it's part of not just mitigation attempts but adaptation and resiliency over time that we need we need places like this to to as part of the climate solution and this question i i feel like some of the answers are going to be the same because you know, the small scale is the same as the, is the big scale in some ways, but uh, I still got to ask it. And that is uh, specifically, what are some things uh, people can do for the boundary waters themselves? Because that's, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about, man. Yeah. So right now we are actually, we have, we have dual comment periods. Um, so as the government is now taking protective measures, uh, that kicks off a series of open um, public uh, comment periods and hearings. And so if we go to our website, savetheboundarywaters.org, um, there's a take action link and you can sign both of these comments right now. Um, so stepping back a little bit, what's going on is the United States Forest Service um, asked the government um, to set aside uh, the watershed of the boundary waters from the ability the ability to be mined um, for up to 20 years. It's the most that the administration can do at one time. Um, so we've got this application for a 20-year mining ban in the watershed of the Boundary Waters, and that starts with a two-year um, study, uh, environmental study of what that would, what what the impacts of sulfur or copper mining are to the Boundary Waters and the local area, um, you know, public health, the economy, all those things that we're touching on. So that's just started right now, and that starts with a comment period where people can write in and say, "Hey, I want you to protect the Boundary Waters because," and you can just give a reason because. Uh, the sulfates would kill the wild rice. And I don't, you know, wild rice is an important um, uh, grain and part of the sustenance uh, activities of the the native uh, tribes that we've signed treaties with. Um, so that's just one aspect right there. So you can just write that in and the government has to take that into account. So we've got that going on at the federal level and at the state level as well as another common period uh, on a very similar topic of just removing this mining threat from the watershed. And so just going to our website and just taking action is great because the government wants to know how many people care about it, what they care about um, as they take all this into account. Awesome. Alex, I got to say, thank you so much. But before you go, can you uh, tell everybody like where they can like follow you and like check out uh, uh, I mean, everything you've already done and uh, what you might be doing in the future? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
this the our the campaign's website save the uh has all the the links for our our campaign social media um mine on instagram which right now is flooded with a lot of northern lights pictures because we just had a giant show last week and i'm obsessed with the night sky and and night photography so my instagram alex falconer um you can find that right there but then i also have a lot about my running advocacy um i'm hoping to have a couple more running advocacy projects next year uh surrounding this kind of more community oriented i want to get out and running with people and just kind of connecting at a at a human level um around the bounty waters so that's a thing that hopefully we'll have coming up kind of soon uh, as well oh yeah alex uh thanks for being on the show man yeah thanks so much for having me